Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on August 29th, 2017 at the Payamet Performing Arts Center in Truro, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is breathe. So we want to please welcome back our fave, Joe Richmond. Thank you. By the way, that Studs Terkel of radio thing is so funny because Studs Terkel was in radio. <laughs> anyway. Um, so it is, wow, I love this event. It's fun to be here. And um, I, I'm going to start by just saying a few words about breathing before we get started. And this comes from two of my radio heroes, these ideas. Um, one from Robert Crowich, the co-host of Radio Lab, which I'm sure some of you know, many of you know. And also, um, uh, n another hero of mine, Nate DeMeo, who runs a podcast called The Memory Palace. Maybe a lot of you don't know him. Some of you do know. Okay. It's a wonderful show. You should all check it out. Um, I mean, not, you know, not now. Um, <laughs> but Memory Palace, it's a podcast. And Nate has this episode where he talks about Marconi. And of course, we all know about Marconi here, because he, you know, he felt like Wellfleet was a good place to send a transatlantic message. And in this episode, he... Um, one thing that many people don't know about Marconi is that at the end of his life, he had had a few heart attacks and he was, became um, really concerned about mortality or immortality. And he became obsessed with this idea that radio waves live forever. And the, you know, there was some reason for this. You know, he had, Marconi had become a hero with the Titanic because radio messages from the Titanic went out to these ships and 700 some passengers were saved because of radio. And but something happened in that in, in with the Titanic that a, a Russian ship, someone at the radio of the Russian ship didn't hear the message for an hour. It was like an hour delay, which was you know because of atmosphere conditions or whatever it was. But but this idea came about that maybe radio, these radio waves live forever. Maybe they last. So at the end of his life, Marconi became obsessed with this idea, and he felt like if he could build a radio strong enough, you know, if he could get it right, he could hear everything. You know, he could hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He could hear Caesar's last breath. He could hear everything that was ever said to him or everything he ever said. And, you know, and we all could. We could hear, um, you know, songs sung to us by our parents as we were babies. Or we could hear someone say, I love you for the first time. Now, this isn't true. <laughs> but um, but there's, there's part of this that is sort of true which is that we will never be able to hear Caesar's breath, but we're breathing a little bit of it all the time. And you know, chemistry students know this. This has like become a staple of like high school and college textbooks, this example of Caesar's breath. That you know, he, he, he let out this breath, and I don't know, it's like a, a liter of breath holds 25,000 million, million, million molecules, I think is right, and that's like 10 with like 22 zeros. Huge number. And so they figured out, scientists figured out that like, you know, some of these get absorbed by plants and water and animals, but some of these just continue to like spread around the world so that right now we are all breathing in with every breath, maybe about a molecule of Caesar's breath. Some, sometimes, sometimes say three, eight, it's a lot of controversy, but the point is, <laughs> the point is that we're breathing in 
everyone's breath, right? Um, Caesar, Cleopatra, Martin Luther King, um, our great-great-grandmother, all of it. And that, I think, is the a real idea of immortality. You know, Marconi didn't need to build a radio for that. So I invite you tonight, as you're thinking about listening to stories and telling stories, you can channel whoever you want as inspiration and take a breath, which we're going to do a lot, and use that to, uh, to tell stories tonight. And I hope you enjoy it all. So we're going to get started with um, the judges. We're going to introduce the judges and the teams. Okay. So whoever is a judging team, I think you're instructed to have a name for your team. And can we have the names for the judging teams? The gasping cucumbers, right over here, in row two. Okay, back there. What is your name? Sorry. Morning breath. Morning breath. <laughs> Lovely. You should meet these two teams. Okay, and the third judging team. The great Gatsby. The great, the great Gatsby. <laughs> oh, it's already a good night. Okay. Okay. All right. We're good with judges. I think we're ready for our first story. You guys all ready? Okay. Tonight's first story. Matt Cecil. Welcome, Matt Cecil. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I, uh, I'll start right off because the five minutes thing is really hard for me, um, the limit. Um, so I have a, um, basically a minor in philosophy that I got in college um, to back up my um, super employable major in uh, psychology. Um, so I, I did a lot of studying of uh, different Eastern philosophies and stuff like that. And one thing I really got out of it was I learned how to meditate and I learned how to breathe. And one thing that was really unique was I had a teacher that actually taught me how to breathe through pain and discomfort, and I don't know if anyone's ever done this before, but when you're meditating, you can do things like if your ankle hurts, you can kind of think about like breathing through your ankle and kind of like exhaling the pain back out. And it's kind of an old uh, philosophy on using the breath to kind of like alleviate yourself of pain and discomfort. And just as easily for a sprained ankle, it works for like a broken heart or something like that. And uh, so it's just a way of kind of breathing through what's ailing you and kind of like exhaling it out away from your body, which, which to me was, you know, at first kind of a little bit hokey, but I really learned how to do it and learned how to use it. And um, of course I used both of those degrees when I moved to Alaska right after college and got a job as a ski instructor. Um, my parents are very proud. Um, and I, I went on to become a, a hiking guide, a backcountry guide, um, skiing all winter, climbing mountains all summer. Um, just an amazing experience. And I ended up getting a job as a, a glacier guide, which I worked for a helicopter company. Um, and we kind of pioneered this, uh, this way of going up. They used to just fly up on the glaciers, land, and you'd be like, oh, it's ice. And, and that was about it. Um, and it was wonderful. But what we wanted to do was really have people experience the glaciers. So we put them in crampons, mountaineering boots, ice axes, the whole works. And we, we'd fly them into the middle of nowhere, and we'd, we'd climb up into these you know, ice falls and stuff, which are crevasses and seracs and moulins, and everything's super dangerous. And we're roped in, and we're teaching them how to ice climb. Um, I actually taught Martha Stewart how to ice climb. Um, and um, so all these things. Uh, I know my friends just did Oprah, though. Uh, so I missed that. I don't live there anymore, and I missed the Oprah show, which is very upsetting to me. 
because um, really no one trumps Martha but Oprah. So, um, so, so my parents were a little bit concerned that I'm flying around in helicopters all day, climbing mountains, crevasses everywhere, these people who don't know what they're doing. And so when they did come up to visit a couple months after I started working, I insisted that they go up and see how safe it all was. Um, so, <laughs> I know, it's another mother story. Um, so anyway, so, so I get them up there, and it's a very small group. Um, they're a comp trip, so which means they're going for free. So I just had another family of like three, and so it's just me as a guide. Normally there's two people. We're climbing up. I teach them how to use all the equipment, you know, the, the, the crampons. You have to stay on your feet because it's ice. <laughs> it's a glacier, um, which I, I shouldn't have to say, but I, I probably should. But it's, so it's all ice. You really need to stay on your feet because you basically have rain gear on otherwise because it's a rainforest. It's very wet. So basically, if you're standing on these spikes, you're fine. If you sit down on your butt, you then go like a toboggan into the abyss. Um, so we're hiking around, and we're going up into this area, and, it's, and it's, there's all these, you know, these uh, ice falls and stuff, and so I'm hiking the group up, and I'm using my axe to chop steps in to get this other family up to a little spot where they can sit and kind of enjoy the view while I, you know, move everybody through. And as I'm going through, my mom is kind of like, she's going up these steps, and she's not really, like, kind of getting on her feet, you know, because it's weird. Like, you're going up steps, you kind of want to, like, 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 if you're climbing a mountain, you kind of almost want to crawl, but it's ice. You don't want to do that. You want to stay on your feet at all costs. So she gets up to the top of this thing, and so I'm down below. She's up here, and as she gets up, she kind of gets up on her knees, and she just boom, starts to go. And I don't really see where she's going because it just disappears off the side. And as she goes by, I grab onto her, which she then, this is a little physics lesson, she's already moving quite rapidly, <laughs> rips me off my feet. We're now both hurling towards what I can't see because it drops off on the other side. So as far as I'm concerned, this is a 100-foot deep crevasse, and we're both, just, we're dead. So we're going in, ice axes, crampons, all very sharp, mind you, too. And as I come around the edge, I realize that we're not going into, we are going into a crevasse, but luckily for us, it is mostly filled with water. So as we go up and over, she is now going in ahead of me. I'm coming in on top of her. I throw my axe so I don't kill her. She goes in, I push her underwater. So we go completely underwater, we both pop up, and all I can see is a little red ring, the hook on the front of her harness, and I grab her, put her up on the ice, and I realize I'm still in the water, I kind of have to scurry up and get myself up, and I just, I grab her now because she's obviously not listening. Um, and so I, I drag her over and stick her on the ground, and I'm like, right, she's soaking wet and she's shaking, and you know, and I, living in Alaska, you learn about hypothermia, Quite, quite quickly. The water there, any drop of water kills you. Like it's all like 40 degrees. We just fell into water that was once a glacier, not a million years ago, like 15 minutes ago. So it's extremely cold. So she's shaking and I'm giving her my stuff and I'm realizing my stuff is all wet. But of course I'm a guide. So I have a backpack filled with all sorts of great stuff like dry clothes and everything. So I'm giving her stuff and in the meantime I'm on the radio. My dad is there like jaw like on the ground like watched his half of his family disappear into a crevasse on his Alaskan vacation. So he's freaking out. My mom's freaking out. I'm on the radio. I'm like, I, I, I don't even, my, I, my, swimming, I don't know. I need help. Um, I need to get them out. And so uh, my friend was basically on the radio. He's like, look, we've got a helicopter here. We'll start it now. By the time you get down here, we'll just stick them on. We'll go. I'll come up and grab the rest of your people. 
fine. I was like, I was like, fine, good. So I walked him down. My mom's like shaking and I'm like, you know, everything's fine. Everything's great. The helicopter's already running. Now, if you've ever been that whole, like where you duck your head, it's like 12 feet high. Like you're not, unless you're like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you're like, hey, you know, like you're not, you're not going to touch those blades. But there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of confusion, and the thing is going, it's a jet engine, and then that thing in the back, the prop in the back actually goes almost the speed of sound. So that you hear is actually it almost getting to the speed of sound, but not getting there. It's incredibly loud. So there's all this stuff going on, I shove my parents into the helicopter, and the, the pilot looks at me like, nice job. <laughs> and so I get in, I put them in, you know, there's all these safety checks, door locks, cabinets closed, everything's locked, clip, 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 clip. I look at the pilot and I walk away and you always keep eye contact with the pilot because he controls where that thing goes. And as I step back, he throttles it up, flies away and like with that, you know, the ice goes flying and there's this noise and there's this unbelievable like, like, like just feeling of like, you feel the static electricity go through your body and everything and so, Basically, I'm, that's the warning, see? Um, so I'm standing there and I'm now soaking wet on a glacier in Alaska and there's no one there. The helicopters are gone, everyone's up in the glacier doing things. I'm soaking wet and I, I sit for a second and I close my eyes and I, I start to breathe in and try to just exhale the, the cold, and I realize I'm, I'm breathing in, and all I feel is cold, cold glacial air. And that's it. Thank you. Okay, Eric J., our next storyteller. Hand for Eric J. Ooh, if you knew how I felt now, you wouldn't act so adult now. Do you ever get a line of a song stuck in your head? Every time I thought of the theme for tonight, I got that line stuck in my head from a song by The Replacements, and I still don't really know why. Hopefully we'll figure it out by the end of the story. I'm not a particularly shy person, I don't think. I mean, I'm up here in front of y'all and I don't have trouble speaking out. But sometimes when something is really important, it's a different story. And I think maybe that's true for all of us, right? When there's more on the line, it's harder to get out. Our breath kind of gets caught up in here. And maybe like we want to say something, we have to say something, but it just doesn't come out, it gets stuck. I think the scientific term for that is verklempt. <laughs> and then there's the opposite. And I wanna try a little experiment here with you if you're willing to do it. Just right now, just kind of blow out all the air that you got in you, like I'll give you a couple of seconds to do it and when it's all out, just hold for a second, don't inhale, and now try to laugh. Well, you, some of you did. My point is that you can't. I guess he can. I don't know. A friend of mine who was a stand-up comic taught me that, and he said his job was not to be the best at telling jokes. It was the, to be the best at controlling the breathing of his audience because he can't really laugh unless you've just inhaled right before. And I guess the scientific term for that is timing. Mm -hmm. So 
if you got all your breath stuck inside you, you can't really do anything. And if you just let out all your breath, you can't really do anything either. And that's what my story's about tonight. Once upon a time, I got on the bus in the big city and I went to the back and I sat down and I looked up and the most beautiful woman I've ever seen was sitting next to me or across from me. She had long curly hair and perfect skin and a radiance that was like an angel in a Renaissance painting. Now, I know that's all very superficial, but like I had to talk to her, right? And I just kind of felt like, you know, how do I come across as a cool guy versus a creep on a bus? Because, you know, there's always a lot of creeps on the bus. We all know that. And then for some reason, I started thinking about in second grade when I got up the courage to sit down next to the cutest girl in school at the lunchroom, and her name was Coco. But it took so much out of me just to sit down next to her that I couldn't say anything. And she looked over at me encouragingly, and I was about to make some words. And my friends came over and they're like, oh, is that your girlfriend? Are you married? And so, sadly, that was over before it began. Only actually, Coco and I just became Facebook friends a couple of days ago, so maybe, maybe I still got a chance. Anyway, I'm on this bus and I'm determined. Because, you know, when life hands you an opportunity like that, which isn't very often, you got to jump on it because it's destiny for sure. So I open my mouth, and the bus stops, and she gets off, and my breath is stuck in my throat. And I sit back, and I say to myself, you know, perfection does exist in this world. It's just always going to get off the bus before you stop. <laughs> and then I think, you idiot! How could you let that happen? And I swore deep down I would never let that happen again. So the next week, I get on the bus again, and I go in the back, and she's there. What do you know? Now, I know you'd all kind of like a happy ending, and I wish I could give you one. Like, I smiled at her, she smiled at me, we started up a conversation, and 30 years later, we have like three great kids, and it's our anniversary, and she's in the audience tonight, but that is not <laughs> what happened. <laughs> The problem this time is she's reading a book, so immediately that's an obstacle because I, I don't want to interrupt someone who's reading a book. I mean, I wouldn't want to be interrupted if I was reading a book. Like, hey, put down that book. That is just so disrespectful and rude. And so I wait, but we're getting closer to her stop, and I know I'm going to have to make my move, and we're getting closer and closer. And finally, we start pulling into her stop, and she looks up, and she sees me, and she recognizes me, and she smiles at me, and... <laughs> And I lean forward, and, and, and she stands up, and she drops her book, and I leap over, and I pick up her book, and I hand it to her, and I say, you dropped your book. <laughs> and I've used up all my breath. <laughs> and she says, thank you, and she gets off the bus. And that by then, I've recovered, and I yell after her, like, hey, do, do you want to get some tea sometime? Like, tea? Like, where the hell did that come from? What am I, like the Queen of England or something? Anyway, she doesn't hear me. I get on the bus again next week, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And, but I never see her again. So here I am. <laughs> but sometimes I wonder, where would I be had I just managed my breathing 
properly. <laughs> and then one day, I saw you walking down that little one way to the place I catch my ride most every day. There wasn't a damn thing I could do or say. Thank you. Storyteller, please give a big round of applause to Jill. Several years ago, I was having a difficult fall. I was living in Boston. My kid had left home. I was a single mom. My kid had left home in college and um, it was a sad time. And I signed up for a Buddhist meditation 10-day silent retreat that was going to take place in February. So there's a lot of time in advance because I felt like I, this is a time in my life when I need to explore my deepest crap. <laughs> um, okay. In the meantime, something happens. I meet somebody. Life got better. And then also life got really better because I had a boyfriend all of a sudden. It was kind of a miracle. Uh, it was a long-distance relationship, but the great thing was he lived in New York City, A, and B, he lived one block between my friend who was one block north of him and a block, I had another friend a block south of him. On Riverside Drive, it was perfect because if I visited him, I would always have girlfriends I could get away, give him a little space, so it was great. Um, so we were, it was great, I think life was different, it was more light, it was more, and I was thinking, this is great, when I go in February, I'm gonna have a wonderful retreat, it's gonna be purifying. Um, so about, we've spent Christmas together and New Year's together, and then I, I, I mentioned him, by the way, I'm gonna be gone for 10 days, and um, we were speaking on the phone quite frequently. I would say not every day, but almost every day. Every 36 hours, actually. So um, I, said, I, st I said, you know, by the way, I mean, he's, he's a sophisticated person. And I said, I, I haven't mentioned this to you, but by the way, in February, I'm going to go on from this date. So, like, a, you know. And he looked at me as if I had, he, he looked at me as if I had joined a cult or something. He looked at me like, are you serious? I, what? He looked at me as if I had fallen from grace. And I said, look, it's, you know, it's no big deal. It's just 10 days. And so it got to be closer, and I tried not to bring it up too much. And, and, and then I was about to leave, and I said, by the way, we can't be in contact for 10 days. Um, and then he really, he went crazy. I mean, he just went ballistic. He said, this is ridiculous. How do I know? Should I call the police? You know, he was, I said, it's people sitting in a room with blankets wrapped around them breathing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, believe me, no sex is gonna happen there. You can't make eye contact with people. You can't even, whatever he was worried about. He should have been worried about a lot of other things, like my deepest heart that I was gonna, research or something. I don't know. So um, I'm off. Anyway, so okay. So I get there. I don't know what the time is. I get there. Um, and um, I, okay, I told him, look, 
uh, he was kind of freaked out. And I said, he said, when are we going to talk? And I said, we can. I said, okay, look, I'll keep my cell phone in my car. Between maybe sometime I'll go out there and I'll text you and I'll say I'm still alive or the food is terrible or something. And you could text me back and trying to be good. I want to obey the rules. So um, I went out to my car. It was very cold in the car, but I charged up the phone and we had a, we texted. Then we started having conversations and that was fun. You know, it was always fun. I would sit all day and I would think about how wonderful he was and then I would go out to my car and I would chat with him. And then it was too cold in my car, so I brought the cell phone into my little room, which I was by myself. So um, he texted me. We were getting kind of, I was really breaking the rules now. So um, when I went into, I would go, I, so one day I saw a text and it said, um, it said, meet you in 20 minutes. And so the next time we had a phone conversation, I said, who, who are you meeting in 20 minutes? You know, I think I texted back and I said, who, who are you trying to text? He was, oh, I'm making a mistake. So the next time we chatted, I said, who are you meeting in 20, where are you going? And he said, and there was not, it was so quick. He said, your competition. And I was, my spirit, I had been in this room with these amazingly spiritual people and I was getting some kind of contact thing going with them. I'm not saying I was being so spiritual because I was really thinking about this great relationship that I had going, but um, which are not really, you know. So sex is not supposed to be, I mean, it is one of the things you do not think about when you're meditating. I mean, you do think about it, but you're not supposed to think about it. So you. But, but then you think about it all the time. <laughs> and you look at everybody else and you start thinking, a lot of hours of in a room, you see these people. So, um, <laughs> all right. So I just want to give you a little laugh because it was devastating. So I, I was going to have you breathe before, but now that I have a minute left, I went back in the sanctuary. I just hung up. And I went back in the sanctuary. It was very late at night. It was... I don't know, midnight or something. And I went in there, and there was one other person in there, probably also grieving. Uh, and I went in, and I wrapped the blankets around me, and I, it was the only time I had been in there when I wasn't even supposed to be in there, because I was cheating with the hours and everything. And, and then when everybody came in at 4.30, I was the first one. It was great, except for the other guy. And, um, and I breathed. And by the time the sun came up, I actually had a little chuckle. So it was, I was in the best possible place and, and I was sort of happy that I had had this adventure in life and um, there's really no end to that. But the, the breathing was, really what got me from, um, you know, this sudden just tornado of insane emotional whatever, rage, panic, to Buddhism. Please give some applause to Deb McKay. My story is about my ongoing spiritual journey, but uh, 
please feel free to laugh at me because uh, it's usually kind of a comedy. And uh, a couple nights ago, I was awakened from a dream by my three-year-old granddaughter who uh, screamed out and woke me up and I went in to her bedroom and got her and hugged her and put her in bed with me. And uh, she had a fever. So I lifted back her sweaty hair off her forehead and put a cool cloth over her forehead and massaged her with lemon balm cream. And she fell fast asleep. And what I had been doing when she screamed in my dream was something I do frequently, which I call automatic opera. <laughs> and um, I try to keep these operas down to like 12 a day. But what I was doing this particular night was a combination of the usual opera, which is kind of Italian arias, but it was combined with mother bear growls and what sounded like, I don't know, like chipmunk mating calls, <laughs> something like that. And it sounded like this. the opera ran its course. <laughs> I was back asleep and I heard this, these frightening warnings being whispered in my ears about some kind of rabid tribe of monkeys that were coming into my bedroom and wanted to get in bed with me and my granddaughter and they were trying to warn me and it sounded like this. It was like, watch out. The rabid monkeys are coming there. There, look under your right armpit. There's one. Oh God, there's three trying to get under your nightgown. And they were warning me and I was like, you know, where I am in my spiritual journey, I'm like, I'm trying to breathe. Breathe into mercy. So I was like, come in monkeys. Come into my nest, and I will feel merciful. And they came in, and the problem was that I didn't want them to wake my granddaughter, but, you know, and, and they were hairy, and they were like, there was this kind of a jungle stench, really. And, and they were nestling up to her, and, but luckily she was deeply asleep, and, um, and so I was like, you know, if I'm really trying to breathe into mercy. You know, I'm going to invite some more people into my nest. I invited my mother and father. Okay, they were dead, but what the fuck, you know. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite my brother. Oh, he's out there. Hi, Dave. I'm going to invite my brother. And, you know, I'm even going to invite those frigging in-laws. 
And, uh, oh, wait, if I'm going to breathe into mercy, I'm going to invite my enemies into the nest. That would be merciful. Yes. And so I invited all the people that I just wanted to kill. You know, the people that I had to scream at all the time and say, like, no, I don't want to calm down. Anyway, stuff like that. So I invited them in, and I wanted to be so, so breathing, breathing into mercy. So I ran around the house. They all came in. I gathered quilts and blankets, and, and I made this huge nest around them. And as I did that, I noticed that they were all making love. Some were dead, some were monkeys, some were fictional, some were alive, my daughter and I, and, but they were all making love and they were just in such beautiful bliss here in my bed, in my nest. It was, I felt, I've done it, I've done it. I've breathed into mercy. And this love fest is the result. Okay, our next storyteller, please give a round of applause for Don Walsh. When I was in my prime childbearing years, I decided I wanted to have a baby. So I asked my partner, Tom, if he also wanted to have a baby. And he said, yes, yay. So I set out to have the most intentional conception, pregnancy, and birth possible. So this involved tracking my menstrual cycle, um, conducting conception rituals, reading lots of books about the stages of pregnancy, and selecting a midwife to assist me in a home birth on natural. No epidural, no pain meds. I was going to breathe my way through the pain. Yeah, that was the plan. So to track my cycle, though, involved taking my temperature every morning um, looking for a spike in temperature, which indicated a spike in progesterone, which indicated fertility. So waiting for this spike in temperature gave me plenty of time to conduct conceptual rituals, um, which included holding a photo of my matriarchal lineage, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, and me, um, and calling forth the matriarchal goddesses. So this involved a lot of meditation-style breathing. Um, um, my most favorite ritual, though, involved painting. Tom, on my stomach, painted my reproductive organs. <laughs> My uterus, my ovaries, my fallopian tubes. He also painted some signage for the sperm to follow. <laughs> First one to an ovary wins. <laughs> 
The morning I woke up with the temperature spike, Tom had already left for work, but there was no way I was waiting till the end of the night. This was going to be a lunchtime baby-making endeavor with lots of excitable breathing. And it worked. Voila, I was pregnant. And then it didn't work. A short two weeks into the pregnancy, just as those pregnancy books had warned, I started breathing in that exasperated way. <sighs> oh my God. Poor Tom, the most cheery, good morning, beautiful, was met with, this is not beautiful. This is constipated and bloated. And then, just a few more short weeks after that, I started wincing in pain, the pain so sharp at times that I could hardly breathe at all. And then came the blood and a visit to Dolly, the midwife, who confirmed I was having a miscarriage. A week of raspberry leaf tea didn't work. I was passing a lot of blood, alternating between um, chills and fevers. So I called Dolly, but she was assisting at a birth and couldn't help. So Tom drove me to the emergency room where the doctor recommended I have a DNC, a dilation and uh, curatage to remove the remaining tissue and stop the bleeding. This procedure hurt like a motherfucker. Uh, the doctor, to no avail, kept injecting me with um, pain meds and telling me to just relax and breathe. You breathe, you motherfucker, you're hurting me! And then there was sweet Tom throughout the whole procedure, holding my hand, staying nice and calm, breathing evenly. And when it was all over, you might think that I would have broken down sobbing, but I didn't. The whole thing had been so painful, emotional and physical, that I was just glad that it was over. So when it was all over, I sat upright on the edge of the exam table, my feet hanging over the edge, Took a deep breath. I finally felt calm and relaxed and hungry. I looked at Tom, who was still holding my hand, sweet man, and said, let's go to the cafeteria. I really want a turkey sandwich. <laughs> Uh, Jerry Riley, come tell us one of your special stories. And no need to judge, Jerry. Don't judge, <laughs> Don't judge him. <laughs> so I love a project. I always, 
I always have a project, and the crazier the better. But the projects I most love are the ones that kind of sneak up on you, and they just grab you, and you know, just shake you, and become all-consuming till you can't breathe. I got that one. Um, and I want to tell you about one of those. It was a long time ago, and there was a man in the White House that uh, I wasn't a big fan of. Uh, and it was right around this time of year, in August, it was an election year, and George Bush Sr. Uh, suddenly was in the news that he didn't pay state taxes. And what it was was his accountants had figured out the scheme. Everybody knew he had the big spread up in Kennebunkport in Maine. Um, but they rented a hotel room in Dallas. And, you know, and this is all totally legal. And because he had this hotel room, he became a resident of Texas, and he beat the, the taxes in Maine. Completely legal. But uh, everybody, it was like a big story. Everybody talked about it. It's very unseemly and seedy, the sitting president renting a hotel room to beat the tax system. But like most news stories, everybody talked about it. 24 hours later, it disappeared and we're on to everything else and forgot about it. So a few months went by. It's coming up to uh, election. And I came across this really interesting and to me surprising piece of information. It was that you could rent an, uh, an ad, you could buy an ad on cable TV in the Boston television market for $50. Well, this little piece of information was like a light bulb. No, it was like a hand grenade in my brain. I heard this, and then I was just obsessed. And within an hour, I tracked down where you buy these ads. It's this place in Waltham. It's an ad agency. I called up. I set up a meeting for the following morning. The next morning, I woke up. I got the suit out. I have a suit. It's in the back of the closet. I wear it for funerals. I got that thing out, put it out. I drove out to Natick, where my sister told me there was a vending machine that made greedy, uh, uh, business cards. For, I think, six bucks, I, I got six business cards. Jerry Riley, Williamson Associates, tax preparation. And I went to this meeting. So I got to the meeting, and I had my whole story down. Uh, we were a little tax prep company. We had never done TV advertising before. Uh, we're, we're thinking about doing a campaign for the upcoming season, February, March, April. But right now, we're just doing our due dil diligence, and uh, you know, we're just kind of checking this out. We want to run a test ad. Um, so the guy says, well, you know, he's a very good salesman. He says, that's not the way it works in TV advertising. It's all about repetition, repetition. And we recommend a minimum of 30 spots and run them over a week, like a week. And I said, no, no, we trust you on all that when we come to doing our campaign. You know, we'll talk to you in January. But right now, we just want one test ad. Well, we go back and forth and back and forth. He's saying it's not a test. If you only do one, you're throwing your money away. Uh, we go back and forth, back and forth. Finally, he says, look, how about you buy five spots. I'll throw five spots in for free. Instead of running them over a week, we'll run them one night. It, next week's the election. We'll put them on CNN the night before. Uh, everybody watches CNN that night. So uh, this was just too good. I said, deal. <laughs> so I walked out of there. Now I've got a problem. I was, you know, this is way more money than I'm expecting. I'm on the hook for 250 bucks. This is like, uh, I go home, I get on the phone, I start calling friends. Um, and no time at all, I've got five friends that are each going to buy one of the spots. I, I've become a franchisor of this thing. <laughs> and uh, so problem one down. So problem two, um, I'm going to have to make a video. Now, I don't know anything about video, but my wife does. But she's out of the country. She's in Ireland vis visiting her family at the time. So I get on the phone to her. I tell her what I'm doing. 
And she's like, oh, Jesus, you're going to get arrested. She's like freaking out about this thing. But she gives me the phone number of the guy in Boston who's a video guy. He says, try him. I call this guy up. I don't know him from a hole in the wall. I've never spoken to him before. I tell him what I'm doing. He's howling laughing. I am definitely in on this. Another problem down. Next up, I need, uh, I need a set. I need a location. So I call my brother. He's a lawyer. He's got this office downtown. It looks like you know, lawyer's office, the desk, the books behind, all this stuff. I tell him what I'm doing. He said, I'm really glad you called because you're definitely going to need legal advice. Um, uh, but he says, sure, you can use my place. And finally, I need the talent. So I track down this old friend from high school who I haven't seen in a couple of years. Uh, and in real life, he's a fast-talking, sleazy salesman. Just what I need. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and actually, if you met this guy at a party, he would really do this. He'd come up to you and he'd say, Blair Belcito, damn glad to meet you. He was kind of one of those guys. So I call up Blair. Uh, he hears about it. He's like, I'm in on this one. And uh, so now we all go Sunday morning down to my brother's office. Uh, we put Blair in front of the desk. We get the lights. We get the camera. And we record this TV commercial. If you earn more than $17,000 and pay state taxes, Williamson Associates can help you. Williamson has pioneered the use of legal residence relocation for the average taxpayer. Join President Bush, U.S. Senators, and corporate presidents in the use of this 100% legal tax reduction method. Never pay state taxes again. Call <laughs> Williamson Associates and the phone number comes up. Now, this phone number was a real number. It, we had an answering machine. You know, you reach Williamson Associates, and we had this whole thing all set up. <laughs> so the next day, the guy edits the video. We've got it Monday morning. We've got the whole thing all ready to go. But it's not going to go out the next Monday. So rather than put this thing in, we sit on it for, like, till Friday's the deadline. We go, we put it in right in a late Friday afternoon, hoping nobody's going to really notice this thing. We put it in, goes in, that's fine. Now, the whole point of this wasn't to get this on TV. The whole point of it was, was, was what's going to happen next, which is Monday night. We know 10 of these are going to run between 7 and 11. We don't know the time. And we've got like 15 people all over Greater Boston, all sitting in the living room, watching CNN with a telephone and a list of all the talk radio shows in Boston. And the idea is, as soon as this ad runs for the first time, all 15 people are going to call up the same talk radio show and try to light up the switchboard. I just saw on CNN this thing, George Bush doesn't pay tax. You know, you just get, like, get all this stuff and see if we can reignite this story into the, you know, the, uh, the, the public. I am so excited. Wait, I can't wait. wait 7 o'clock comes. We're there. 7.15. When's it going to run? 7.30? 8 o'clock? 9 o'clock? 10 o'clock? Because 11 o'clock, the thing doesn't run. I am beside myself. I have been so consumed by this, and I'm out of my mind. It's not run. It's like, what the hell's going on? I call them the next day, the ad agency, and as soon as the guy gets on the phone, it's clear as day. They smelled a rat. They saw this thing, and thanks to my uh, uh, wonderful legal advice from my brother, um, they couldn't reject this for cause, but they knew we were up to something, and they just kind of like... Um, we'll get that money back to you as quick as we possibly can and just please go away was more or less the message. So this whole thing was a total and complete failure, you know? Um, and I, was, I, I have to admit, at the time, I was very disappointed. But, you know, not too long afterwards, you know, I realized I had more fun doing this thing. I was so excited. I love these kind of projects. And the other thing is, I found that, like, projects that failed projects, of which I have plenty... Um, oftentimes, you learn a whole lot, and you get a lot of, and you, you get a bunch of new skills and a new experience that then, in a future project, you know, you can put to use, 
and, and you know, and succeed with it. And uh, oh, did I mention there's a guy in the White House right now, and I'm not really fond of him. I, I'm just saying, you know. Welcome, Dick Morrill, to the stage. You're going to get for a treat. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. Um, when I was about eight, nine years old, I used to love watching cartoons with my friend Dominic, who lives up the street. Uh, Dominic lived right across the street from the, um, the house that the priests live in, and I lived right down the street from the church. We were a very Catholic neighborhood. Um, so we were watching cartoons one day on a, an eight millimeter uh, projector that his father had. And we had seen all the Looney Tunes and things, and he came in with a, a reel that he found in his father's chest. He said, let's watch this one. <laughs> and he runs it through the projector, and we're watching, and it's not a cartoon. It's black and white. It's, it's silent, and it's, you know, there's two women in a couch, and they're just sitting there, and you see in black, knock, knock. And they, oh, they get up and they go to the door and it's the mailman and they bring the mailman in. <laughs> and it's all jumpy. I said, Dominic, this is, you know, this is no fun. And all of a sudden, uh, they start taking off their clothes. And uh, what, what, are they do what are they doing? And uh, uh, whoa, we've never, never seen anything like this before. And uh, uh, we start breathing. Uh, <laughs> different. And then, then they take off his clothes. Whoa. Wow. And then they start uh, getting him naked and they, and they start rubbing and whoa. And uh, now we're, not only are we breathing funny, but we're feeling funny. But good. Uh, we've never, ever experienced this feeling before. We had no idea it was coming, especially this close to the Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, so, it, it, and it's our whole body, uh, and especially. And anyway, we watch it, and they do things like, ooh, what is that? Ooh, I don't know, Dominic. And we quickly, we rewind the thing, and we put it back in the can, put it back in his, his, his mother's hope chest. And <laughs> back then in the 40s and 50s, women had hope chests. And uh, we run downstairs because his mother's coming home soon, and we're just filled with this energy or whatever it is. And we're, we're lying on, we don't know what to do. We're eight, nine years old, we're rolling on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and his mother comes home. And, she said, hi, Dickie. And I said, hi, I, I have to go home. And I, I back around her because I don't want her to see me in this condition. And I go home, down the street. By the time I get home, I'm, oh, oh I'm back to normal and everything's okay. Uh, nobody's home except my grandmother's in the kitchen cooking. And uh, I remember in my uncle's closet, there was a magazine. Uh, and it's not Hustler or anything, it was a hunting and fishing magazine. And I climb on a chair and I get it down and I 
open it because I'd gone through it many times. And I look at these little commercials, little ads, they're about two inches, for uh, lingerie. Now there's guns and there's boots and there's boats and there's fishing rods and lingerie. Because when I'm going hunting, I'm bringing my lingerie. <laughs> but it didn't matter why, it was there. And when I would look at it, it felt the same. There was a connection. So I take it out and I put it down on his bed and I'm looking at it and I think, I've learned something. That was like a sex education TV movie I saw. I start touching myself the way they, they touched him. And about 10 seconds later, there is this explosion I cannot, I cannot describe, but my hips melted and shot out to the side. I don't know what it was, and I fell flat on the bed, and I wasn't breathing. <laughs> so then all of a sudden, I, I stood back up, and I was completely back to normal. And I looked at the pictures of the lingerie, and it didn't do anything. And so I put the magazine back, and I thought, did that really happen? I mean, when you're eight years old, there's no uh, wet spot. And so I, I didn't know if that had really happened. So I went downstairs, and I was doing something. But a half hour later, I said, I'm going to try that again. <laughs> so I'm standing in the same spot, but it's getting close to when somebody's going to come home. So I don't even take the magazine down. I just think about it. And it happens again. Wow, but this time I was expecting it. I didn't fall onto the bed and I said, yes. I have discovered something nobody knows about. This, I, I don't know anything about marketing. There was no such thing back in 1950. But I know I can sell this. And I can sell this to everybody in the world. There's nobody that isn't going to want this. Wait till I tell mommy. <laughs> and I think to myself, I'm going to do this every day of my life. I just did it twice. I'm going to do this four times a day, every day of my life, because why wouldn't you? It doesn't take, I, all you had to do was think and rub. Oh, this is great. So I go and I tell Dominic, and it turns out that all the other boys in school knew about it, but they, 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 they never told us, maybe because we live so close to the church. <laughs> so we're doing this all the time. We're, we're just everywhere, and... <laughs> I remember in school, Seeing a pretty girl walk by, I raised my hand and said, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom, and I get a pass. <laughs> they give you a pass to go down to the bathroom and do it. So I come back, and after about a year, I can remember there was a meeting of the CYO, the Catholic Youth Organization, the bigger kids, and one of the, the men who was giving a lecture was saying, we were walking by, I just heard him saying, you are risking eternity in hell. <laughs> Burning and suffering eternally for flames 
for one or two seconds of joy. Oh no. Oh no. I know what he's talking about. Oh, it's a sin! Oh, shit! Oh, it was so good. It was so happy. It didn't take. It didn't hurt anybody. It didn't cost any money. Oh, Dominic, it's what? Well, it's a sin. What do you mean it's a sin? I heard the guy talk. It's a sin. Oh no, it's a mortal sin, Dominic. We have to go to confession, and we have to tell them what we've done and how many times. And he says, "Well, what are we gonna say?" I don't, I don't know, I'm not going to tell him I did that, but we'll have, there's got to be a name for it or something. And so we don't know what it is. So we continue doing this nameless thing. And eventually, I get it. It comes to me. I know what it is. And I call Dominic, I say, Dominic, I know what it is. And it is a mortal sin. It's one of the Ten Commandments. He says, which one? It's not thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> He said, what? Yeah, they never tell you what adultery is, and they never tell you what this is. Put two and two together, Dominic. This is adultery. <laughs> it's one of the Ten Commandments. We know what all the others are, except that craven images thing. And so we have to go to confession. And we buck up to see who's going to go first. And I lose. Okay. <laughs> And I'm on my way to confession, it was a Saturday afternoon, and I'm hoping it's Father O'Brien, because he's a sweet guy. And please don't let it be Father Griffin, because he's just grouchy. <laughs> and it's Father Griffin. So I go into Father Griffin, and I say, bless me, Father, for I have sinned, and I make up sins, which is what Catholic kids do, you know. <laughs> and the number of sins, I say, I disobeyed my parents, I was a bad boy, I was late. And then I say, and then I lied three times which I just had done. <laughs> and I committed adultery 1,250 times. And he yells at me. <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about. You and my it's like Charlie Brown, and the words are going on, and I don't know what he's saying. And he finally says, "Say ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys." Don't do it again. And I go out and I say my penance. And Dominic, Dominic had been waiting, and he came up. And he said, "I'm not going in there." <laughs> he said, "What went wrong?" I said, it's not adultery. Oh, well, what is it? I don't know. <laughs> Dominic, he was yelling at me, and I got so scared, I didn't hear a word he said. So, so we're, gonna just, we're just going to hell. <laughs> so on my way here, I, I looked at my uh, iPhone calculator, and I'm... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's around 86,500. <laughs> and you're all going to hell too, you know. <laughs> and, 
Thank you. Catherine Wallace Rogers. Hand for Catherine Wallace Rogers. I was like, I'm a teacher. It can't be me. I write so neatly. <laughs> All right. I, anyway, so um, I, breathing is really important to me. I've been doing it my whole life. And uh, I do a lot of things with breathing. I've always been a swimmer. I started swimming when I was like three, and I love staying underwater, and I love, you know, the ocean underwater, and I try to learn how to um, see underwater by, like, breathing bubbles, and then I look in the bubbles as if they were a little mask, and I try to learn that, but it's, it, I haven't perfected it. So I also go to Herring Cove with my friends, and um, we're all diving in, and then I dive in, and I dive under, and I go out, and I go like 100 yards out, and they don't know where I am, and they get scared. And then I pop up like a seal, and I like that too. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I've, uh, I'm a mother. I've given birth to two children, and without breathing, I don't think I could have made it. Um, I, uh, I, no drugs, just really breathing, and because and, I swam a mile a day, um, it made it easier to, to give birth to the children. They pretty much flew right out. Um, and uh, something else I do. Oh, um, so I've done yoga since I was 15, which is, you know, just about 40 years. And um, I, uh, I really, that was really helpful. I, I once uh, was driving along Route 6. It was the middle of winter, and there was, um, like, snow squalls. And so there'd be like a strip of snow and then a strip of black top and then, and then a really deep strip of snow. And I was driving along and in the, it, there were only tracks in the, in the right-hand lane because everybody was trying to be, you know, um, you know, straight and narrow and going in the tracks. And I got this little wild hair. I was thinking about my friend Billy for some reason and I was just like, what would happen if I just put one wheel out of the track? And I heard my brother saying, accidents happen when the wheels are on two different surfaces. But I did it anyway, and I started to kind of really slowly in my head spin out, and the car was revolving, and I was thinking, shit, this is no good at all. And, um, and so I said, do your yoga breathing. You're gonna be safe if you just breathe. Just breathe, and the car's spinning, and I'm breathing. And I really totally surrender. I'm like, okay, if this is my time, I'm ready. And I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I, uh, I must have blacked out. And I woke up on the side of the road, and it was like a gully. And uh, my, I'm facing forward, and I'm just at the edge of the road. And I'm thinking, wow, that wasn't so bad. I breathed right through it. I'm alive. And the car's fine. I'm just going to pull out and that's like well maybe I should check you know and a couple of cars were going by and I'm like it's all good and so I, I hopped out of the car and I was like looking at the car I'm thinking whoa the whole back window was stoved in I think that's the word you use when it's like just totally in and I collect rocks there's rocks all over the car I had my skis and ski poles I'm so lucky I just didn't have a ski pole through the back of my head but I also looked at the top of the car, and it was down like three inches. And I'm like, how does that happen? I was like, oh my god, the car rolled 
but since I did my yoga breathing, I'm good. You know, I didn't, I, like only later that night, I was a little bit, like I woke up in the middle of the night and I felt dizzy and I went to the bathroom and I was so dizzy and I just had terrible, terrible diarrhea. But anyway, so what I want to tell you is I'm also a poet. And, um, <laughs> and so, like for poetry, breathing is really important. It's really, really important. And you learn, I, I've been a poet since I was really little too, and you learn about it. And, and so I thought I would share a poem with you and just show you sort of the difference like that breathing makes in a poem. So I don't know if some of you might know the poem Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. Yeah. Right, so. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours and I'll tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the rain, uh, sun and the clear pebbles of the rain move across the landscape over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, high on the deep, uh, clean blue air, the wild geese are heading home again. Uh, whoever you are, no matter how lonesome, the world calls to you, calls to your imagination, announcing your place in the total loss of the last words. Um, whoever you are, no matter how lonesome, the world calls to you like wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. So that's the way to do it without remembering it and also without breathing. <laughs> um, but I thought I would... <laughs> I thought I would just share with you what it's like if you breathe, perhaps not properly, but the way I do it. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk for a hundred miles on your knees through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, high in the clean blue air, the wild geese are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonesome, the world calls to you, calls to your imagination like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Thank you. The next storyteller, come on up, is Amy G. So when my daughter was six years old, I lost her in the woods of Truro. We had left our house on North Pamet Road and walked back toward Route 6. We were walking my dog, Boo Radley. And when we did this, we had two options. We could walk along North Pamet Road or we could cut into a fire road down past the Cranberry Bog House and out to Dyer Hollow. Just over the dune in Dyer Hollow was where my mother spends every day of the summer reading. It was about six o'clock 
late August, this time of year, and my mother was still out there. So I said to my daughter, do you want to take the fire road and go see Grandmommy, or do you want to keep on walking on North Pamet? And she said, let's go on North Pamet. So we walked. Boo Radley was about 11 years old at the time. He's since passed away. Um, and he was a slow walker, so we were taking our time. When we turned around to come back, my daughter ran ahead where I couldn't see her. She had always been a pretty clingy kid, never really wanted to be too far away from us, so I encouraged this kind of independence. I could hear her yell something up ahead, and I yelled, just wait where you are, I'll be right there. I came around the bend, and she wasn't there. And I came around the next bend, and she wasn't there. I was still feeling proud of the independence. Um, but as I got close to our house, I started to get a little worried. And I walked up to the door, and my mother was there. And I said, is Harper here? And she said, no. I said, OK. So maybe she was telling me she was going down the fire road. So Boo and I walked back, started down the fire road. And I started to breathe a little heavy, <laughs> thinking, this is a kid who will not go into the other room alone. Where exactly has she gone by herself through the woods? But I knew she knew the path out to Dyer Hollow. I knew she knew to go over the dune. So Boo and I continued on. And we got over. I was sort of pulling Boo behind me. 11-year-old dog, as I said, does not walk very fast. But as we got to Dyer Hollow, I don't know if many of you know it, but there's several paths that come in, about six different paths from different places. And you're in this hollow, and then as you said, you go over the dune, you go to the beach. So I was walking out, I get to the hollow, there's no one else on any of the paths. I go over the dune, and there's no one on the beach. And I'm again dumbfounded, where has my daughter gone? I call my mother back at the house and say, is she back there? And she says, no. So I start to go back over the hill, and I'm calling her name. I'm saying, Harper, 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 as loud as I can, and I'm hearing nothing back. There's, I seem to be alone in the woods. So I start running up and down the different paths, calling her name. I text my mom and say, please call Mark Adams. Many of you might know Mark Adams. <laughs> he actually works here at the seashore. Yes, he's, a, he's famous out here in Truro. Um, he's the person to call if you've lost anything in the woods. He, is, um, he works for the seashore. He makes maps. And he basically can do or solve. He can do anything and solve any problem. So I say, please call Mark Adams. I'm still running these paths, calling my daughter's name, feeling alone in the woods. And my mom texts back. Mark says, call 911. Now, if Mark Adams tells you to call 911, you do it. But you're also really panicked, because Mark's the one who's supposed to solve any problem. So I take my phone out. I call 911. And that's when I realize I really cannot breathe. The operator is really patient with me as I try to catch my breath and try to get out the words that I've lost my daughter. She asked the pertinent questions. What is she wearing? Where did you lose her? Um, I get this information out, and she says, please go down to the road. I was still in, in the trails. So I go down to the road. In a matter of seconds, it felt like, a cop car pulls up. The cop car comes up. He says, are you Amy? I say, yes. And he says, does she swim? 
And I say yes, and he takes off. And I learned later that the first person who shows up at the scene of a missing child in Truro, probably in most of the towns in the Outer Cape, their task is to go to the dunes with binoculars to make sure that no one's drowned. I didn't know that at the time, so I'm standing on the side of the road sobbing, and I decide to do what I've been doing for what seems like about 20 minutes now, and I go back into the trails calling my daughter's name. But now when I'm calling her name, I'm saying, Harper, Harper, I pause to hear something back, and all I hear is Harper, because people have started to join. There are cops, there's first responders, there's ambulance drivers, EMT, they're all calling her name, that's all I'm hearing back. I might have ran about 10 miles that evening, and as I said, it was about six o'clock at night, this goes on for about an hour, and it starts to get dark. And I'm really worried, um, as you can imagine. Um, I'm really worried that it's going to get dark and we're not going to find her. Um, I see Mark Adams show up with a headlamp at some point. I see people I don't even know running through the woods calling, calling her name. Eventually, my mom texts and says she's here. Um, it turns out Harper had gone the wrong way on the beach. Two people had found her way down at Long Nook and had walked her the long way home. And somehow none of us had found her or come across her in all of this running. She and I slept completely wrapped around each other that night. There was a dramatic reunion that involved me falling on the street sobbing. Um, <laughs> and the next morning I'm outside the house and a car pulls up and this woman gets out and she tells me, do you she asked, do you recognize me? And I said, no. She said, I was here last night. I'm a uh, nurse in an ER in Springfield, Massachusetts. I thought if something had happened to your daughter, I could help. We proceed to talk a little bit about what happened. And she tells me her own story, um, partic in particular about how she was pregnant with her first child. She had gone into the hospital to give birth. It was really early in her pregnancy when she went into labor. Her husband had driven her there. This was before ultrasounds were regularly done. And she's, they have to do an emergency C-section, and she has triplets. She, she wakes up from the emergency C-section, and her husband's gone. And she's never talked to him again. And it was an incredible story to hear in the hangover of my own potential loss. She and I stood in our driveway um, looking at each other, and we did what people do after they've been through an intense situation, after they've offered to help each other, after they've considered their own loss, both actual and potential. We just breathed. Thank you. Next story, give a round of applause for Justin O'Connor. Where's Justin? Justin? Justin, coming down. Oh, come on, okay. All right, keep the applause going. All right. Hey, guys. Everything good? Oh, sweet. Wow. I feel, thank you for leading that meditation there. 
Uh, I don't know what I'm going to say. Uh, and I just wrote my name here and put it in and thought that the theme was breathing. So I would try breathing and maybe a speech would come. And if I failed, Jerry already earlier, or someone already earlier told us that failure is great and you can learn from that. And from the scores, I can see the judges like adventure. Um, <laughs> they like children. <laughs> uh, they're afraid of bestiality. Um, so yeah, I'll try to include all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, I was driving down the road actually two days ago, and I was thinking, wow, I really need to practice breathing more. I don't breathe that much, and I am trying to... No, because I, I, I'll... You know, there's other things you can do instead of breathing, and we can all become addicted to all sorts of things. And I was in the car, and I was driving, and I was looking at the trees, and I was thinking, what is their reality? Because for me, I'm breathing in oxygen and breathing out uh, carbon dioxide, I hope that's the word. CO2, that's all I can imagine. Yeah, carbon dioxide. And the trees are taking that in, and uh, breathing out, I guess we could say, if we're going to personify it, uh, like uh, oxygen. So, yeah, I was really blown away. I thought that was beautiful. So that was one thing I thought about breathing. Uh, let's see. <laughs> what else do I have here? You like adventure. So earlier on this year, last year, this year, I was up... Uh, at Rainbow Mountain, and if anyone's lucky enough to go to the Andes, uh, to the Sacred Valley, Rainbow Mountain's beautiful. It's one of the positive things that global warming has given us. Uh, glaciers are melting everywhere. <laughs> We're terrible people. But now we can see this mountain range in Peru, in the Andes, that has uh, vertical lines of sediment deposit instead of horizontal that we're used to. And you look at it, and it blows your mind because there are reds really strong and greens really strong and blues and, 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 and yeah, it, all the colors, just imagine them. Um, and I waited for, actually, I didn't really want to go to this. It was a huge tourist trap. And the other teachers that I were with loved it. And they waited until the snow would be gone and they could spend the money and we would go on this huge artery of tourists that walk up to 17,000 feet or some, some actually take horses because it's crazy. Uh, and we got up there, and it was uh, snowing. We got up in a blizzard. And everyone was so disappointed because you didn't get to see any of the colors. And I was having a hard time breathing, and everyone was. I won't talk about the journey because it's like, whatever. Uh, uh, it was just very hard to breathe and everyone was disappointed and I didn't understand why everyone was disappointed because maybe I was high off of lack of oxygen and I, I thought it was beautiful and then uh, yeah, the, the sun came out like it always sort of does and started melting 
all the snow, and in the snow, the, the colors of the sediments as it melted and created little rivers of water uh, had all the color in it. And I thought that was uh, even almost more beautiful, but I also could have just been high, like I said. I, there was no oxygen at all. And it makes me think th those trees that are up at those altitudes, do they, are they high as well? Like, we go to Mount Washington or other mountains, Castle Hill, uh, like, um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, I have other stuff I could say, but I don't know how long I can stay up here for. Uh, yeah, breathe, but breathe in through your nose uh, and then out through your mouth. And then some people call it smelling. Um, yeah, it's really good. Uh, see you guys later. Let's give a round of applause to Pam Anderson. Anderson, the original. I didn't have to get it out there. So um, it's it's the dog days of summer in August. It's 1964, and I'm eight years old, and I'm playing in the backyard with my two sisters, and uh, we live in a small town near Warren, Ohio, and uh, our parents are at home, and at that time it. You know, it really doesn't matter if your parents are home. We were home alone all the time, getting into all kinds of mischief. But we're waiting for our folks to get home from work. My dad worked at a steel mill, and my mom worked at a ladies' dress shop. So we're out there playing, and we hear the gravel as dad drives up. And we're not paying any attention, but he comes around the corner, and he says... Um, hey, girls, daddy has something for you, which could be anything, like a Twinkie left over maybe in his lunchbox, and we could split it. So we go running up, and he says, it's around the corner in the car. So we go just blazing around the corner to the, to the car. It's a four-door. And out of the back seat, one window is a head, and the tail is out of the other side of the window, and it's a pony. <laughs> and it's like our biggest, most wonderful dream ever. And, and we open the door, and we lead the pony out. And in addition to the dogs and the cats and the hamsters and the turtle that got lost in the house that we never found in the parakeet now, like we have our, our greatest dream as the pony. So we take it into the backyard, has a rope around his neck, and we get a bucket of water, and we're pulling grass, and the neighborhood kids start to come over, and we have popularity <laughs> for, the, for the first time ever. And we're so, and we're like really judicious about this. Like they could touch the pony, and we're considering names. And my dad by then has a Paps Blue Ribbon, and he's smoking a cigarette, and he's on the porch swing, and he's swinging back and forth. And we're like, we're so happy. And then we hear the gravel, 
and it's mom, and she's coming home, and she's pulling him beside the, you know, and she, you know, she's kind of a larger woman, and she's got, she's, and she dresses up for her um, work, and she's got her hose on and her long line girdle, or her girdle and her long line bra, and you know, she's kind of wedged into this outfit, and she's got her <laughs> high heels and her matching purse, and she comes around the corner, and by then the parents have lined up along the fence in kind of confusion, and all of our new friends are around us, and she, <laughs> and she comes around, and she just looks at this, and we're so, so happy. And one of the neighbors says, Dolores, you're not really going to keep that pony, are you? And we, I hold my breath because everything, I mean, my mom could go one way or the other. It could be a big yes, and this would be great. It would make our lives, or it could be a really big no. So I'm holding my breath. And she, like, it's the roof. She's so pissed at my dad and us and everyone. And she said, we are not keeping that pony. And Jack Richardson, you get that pony back where you came from. And no one gets in the house again until that pony's gone. And she slams into the house. And the door slams shut. And it's locked. And... <laughs> And we're sobbing, we're, cry we're crying. And my best friend, Debbie Scott, from across the street, brushes past me and she slams into my shoulder and she says, I knew you wouldn't get to keep it. <laughs> and then dad takes the pony, like that, and he loads it in the car, <laughs> the tail and the head, and he says, just remember, girls, daddy brought you a pony. <laughs> But mother wouldn't let us keep it. Our story tonight is Jill. I have always had a problem with gender. It started with Halloween and my mother, Edith. I like to be a witch. I like the tall hat, the broom, and I could fly anywhere. Edith decided I had to be a boy and a girl. Now, this was long before gender studies. And I had no idea what this was going to look like. And Edith said, we're just going to divide you in half, Jill. <laughs> and on my right side, she put a skirt and a half a ruffled blouse. And I had very long, gorgeous hair, and she pushed it in the front, and she put half a red lipstick and big mascara and eyebrow and earrings. And I thought half of me looked gorgeous. And the other, oh, and on my foot, I had one high heel. So 
There I was. The other half, this is really a true story. And she put on men's pants, that she, and she tucked that other leg in. And then she rolled up, you know, because I was very short. She put a muscle t-shirt on, so it was a half a t-shirt and half a fluffy blouse. And she rolled up. She had somehow figured out how to put a hat on me, and she drew a mustache. And she said, now you're going to go trick-or-treating. And on my left foot, there was a boot. So I'm trying to walk in one high heel and a big boot, and I knock on Mrs. Schwartz's door. And, Mrs. and I say, trick-or-treat. And Mrs. Schwartz says, what? are you? I said, I'm a half girl, and I'm a half boy. And Mrs. Schwartz said, you can't be that. But I said, my mother said I could. And she said, get out of here. I was horrified. And I came home, and I was very upset. And I said to Edith, why couldn't I just be a witch? Everybody knows what a witch is. She said, Jill, I just thought you really, really looked good in the half girl and half boy. And you know what? Years later, when I became a lesbian, I had to thank my mother for her insights. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Title Theater Company's Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us at facebook.com slash mosquito story slam. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on soundcloud.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Take a chance. And bite it live.